to what I hope is the first in a series of podcasts, issues relevant to foreign or or non-U.S. companies operating in the United States. My name is Mike Burke. I am a partner with the law firm Arnold Golden Gregory, where I co-chair our firm's international practice. I also have a specific focus, given my background, companies from Ireland and Northern Ireland investing in and operating in the U.S., uh, today, we're joined by Sean King. Sean's a former partner of mine in a previous life. He's now with Align Global Consulting, and he is an expert on all things international tax. And we're going to talk a bit about some of the tax issues and tax planning opportunities that present themselves in connection with a non-U.S. company investing here. So, Sean, welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, always great to spend time with you and reminisce a little bit about that uh, former life together. So it's, <laughs> a, it's it's great to be able to continue to spend some time. Um, as you said, I'm, I'm with Align Global Consulting. We are a U.S.-based uh, tax advisory firm comprised of uh, lawyers, accountants, economists. Um, so we really blend a, a variety of different disciplines uh, across Uh, our firm to provide counsel to clients that are engaging in cross-border transactions and and cross-border activity. In my specific role, I lead the firm's cross-border structuring and international tax practice. And the simplest way to distill it, Mike, I I always like to say that if, if you are a multinational corporation that is moving people, goods, product, currency, intellectual property across a border, we can assist you to do that more efficiently and with less tax drag on uh, your transactions. You've always used this phrase, treasury management, which I find, I think it's a great phrase because I think it encapsulates a lot of what you do. And for companies making sure that they don't end up cutting a check uh, to, in this case, the US IRS, that's bigger than it needs to be. Well, that's that's right, Mike, and and it's um you know it, it's it's tax planning, it's um, efficient tax planning. It is planning that, in my view, you know, officers of uh, multinational corporations have a fiduciary duty to bring to to the company. Uh, it's not tax avoidance. It's nothing nefarious or underhanded. It is just good blocking and tackling. And as you said, it leads to efficient treasury management. And I think sometimes people get so hung up on the word tax when they're talking about cross-border planning or cross-border structuring that they lose sight of the fact that this is really about where you need your cash to sit, where your cash needs, and how can we have uh, a structure where you have access to your cash, the ability to use your cash efficiently without unnecessarily bleeding a tax cash cost to the relevant tax authority in whatever jurisdiction it might be. Right. So let's, um, I thought it might be useful to kind of, as somebody once said, start at the beginning where, you know, we generally get introductory questions from foreign companies. And one of the first questions that pops up is, you know, sort of this, well, you know, I, I make widgets and I sell these widgets from my, home jurisdiction, wherever that is, into the United States, you know, what's wrong with that? And and that brings to mind, you know, as you know, I, I've taken just enough tax to be dangerous, but there's that phrase permanent establishment that 
should concern people, not necessarily scare them. But let's take that example first. What are the tax implications there if a company is selling into the United States uh, from their home jurisdiction? So the notion of permanent establishment, Mike, first, you won't find it in the tax code. So you can scour the internal revenue code backwards and forwards. You won't find it in there. The notion of permanent establishment is a concept that appears in the relevant tax treaty between, in, in your example, uh, the United States and the company and the country where that that company is operating or where its its home office is. So you first look at that tax treaty between the two jurisdictions, and there will indeed be an article in that treaty entitled "Permanent Establishment." And what it will do is it will give you really the framework for the continuum of light touch to heavier touch, meaning what can you do if you're just selling into the US, you have no bricks and mortar here, you have no people here, maybe there's just warehousing activity taking place here. The result of that read of the treaty might tell you you don't have a taxable presence in the US. But then all the way along the continuum, the opposite can be true. If you have an office space here, a fixed place of business here in the US, if you have dependent agents or employees operating on behalf of the company in the US, all of those activities, when looked at in totality, can give rise to permanent establishment. What does that mean in practicality for, for some of our listeners um, who are less familiar with international concepts? They might be more familiar with the concept of state nexus. Permanent establishment is very much like the domestic concept of state nexus. Have you tipped the scales such that your activity in the United States gives rise to having a taxable presence in the United States? And if the answer is yes, then we need to think about those ramifications because you know the, the worst scenario for any multinational is paying multiple items of taxation on one item of income. Yeah. So if I'm a multinational and now I've inadvertently created a taxable presence here in the U.S. that might also be subject to tax back in my home country, I might have created multiple layers of taxation on one item of income, obviously a very bad result. So at that point, then, if we think that you, you will have tipped the scales and you will have inadvertently created a permanent establishment, in many cases, the solution is to form a legal entity in the U.S., to encapsulate the US activity within that singular legal entity and to isolate and insulate the foreign parent company from those US liabilities. And that's of course, when, when you come in and when we, when we turn to you and your colleagues and, and you begin the, the thought process around the choice of entity and types of entities and those sorts of things. Yeah, you know, and then choice of law, kind of the introductory question of, well, where do we as a foreign company, where do we form our U.S. affiliate? And this might be a broader topic for another podcast, but, you know, we generally refer back to Delaware. I mean, it's the most transparent, most predictable corporate law that's in the United States. They are protective of their investors, which, you know, in this case would mean the foreign parent, as well as the officers and directors and shareholders of the foreign parent. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously two questions that pop up on sort of this international structuring. One is the tax, which we're talking about. The other is how do you ring fence your operational risk from the United States? How do you keep that away 
from the foreign parent. And this is where, you know, the entity comes in and presumption, uh, you know, as you know, in the U.S. is that except in certain circumstances, there's a corporate shield in place, which means, uh, you know, the shareholders or stockholders of a company, you know, again, in our, our example, uh, you know, the foreign parent are not liable for the debts or obligations of the U.S. affiliate. Um, there's certain things that can happen to, you know, what they call piercing the corporate veil. And we can get into that at some other point because that's a whole other whole other set of discussions. But, you know, one of the initial things that pops up is, you know, in Delaware, there's I forget what the exact number is, but there's at least a dozen different types of we'll call them business entity choices. You know, everything from partnerships to limited liability partnerships to limited part, you know, you keep going down the road, but for tax purposes, there's really only sort of two questions, or maybe it's just one question, which is, do you want to be taxed as a corporation or do you want to be taxed as a, as a partnership? And I think therein lies the the trick, right? At first glance, being ta- if you're a foreign parent, being taxed as a partnership sounds like a great thing. Well, it does. And, and it's, you know, you probably heard me say this before, Mike, <laughs> Google has become uh, yes. a, a very dangerous thing in the world of, 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 of tax research, because countless times a year, I will receive a, a call from, you know, in fairness, you know, sophisticated uh, non-U.S. multinationals saying we, we, we'd like to establish a presence in the U.S. We've done our, our initial analysis and we'd like to form uh, an LLC, we'd like our U.S. entity to be a pass-through entity for U.S. tax purposes. And I'll immediately say, well, why is that? Well, because we're not then subject to U.S. taxation. And that's not true. And, and that's one of the, the larger misconceptions out there. Indeed, for a, for a U.S. person owning a pass-through entity, if, if you or I were partners in a, in, in a pass-through entity or partnership here in the U.S., or if, if I was a single a member of a, of a U.S. LLC. Indeed, that is a pass-through situation where I'm only going to be subject to, or you and I are only going to be subject to one layer of taxation. We won't be subject to tax at the entity level. It will flow through to us in our, our individual capacities. But as soon as you have a non-U.S. owner of a U.S. pass-through vehicle, uh, the rules of the game change. And so there are a series of, uh, of rules on, uh, under uh, the U.S. tax code, one of which is, is the branch profits tax regime that basically is designed to level the playing field between a, a U.S. entity and a, and a non-U.S. entity carrying out business in the U.S. Simply put, Mike, the, the IRS is not going to allow a non-U.S. company to come into the U.S., carry out activity. And yeah. avoid taxation, right? Well, it's, uh, it, right. It, I mean, it's the universal constant of, you know, every tax authority wants to get paid, right? I mean, it's, you know, the IRS isn't going to sit there and say, you know, good on you, you figured out how to operate in the U.S. without getting taxed. Right. I call it the bite at the apple, right? Every right. tax authority on the planet wants their bite at the apple as goods, services, money, IP, whatever moves along the supply chain. And you know, the U.S. government, um, as far as I know, has never been all that benevolent in wanting to subsidize other economies. And so that's why we have these these regimes baked into the U.S. Uh, tax code 
that make sure that if you are a, U, a non-US company um, engaging in US activity through a pass-through US vehicle, that pass-through vehicle will be subject to tax. In other words, you will pay US tax um, before any of those funds are repatriated back to the non-US partner or owner, um, before there's any flow through uh, of income going out the door back to that non-US partner. And, and moreover, so, so first of all, you're not, you're not saving yourself any tax liability by establishing a US pass-through entity. And worse yet, if you're a non-US partner or owner in a US flow-through vehicle, you are viewed as engaging in a U.S. trader business. So that would mean that the, US, the non-U.S. individual owner or the non-U.S. corporate owner would need to go out and get a U.S. tax identification number and itself would have to file U.S. tax returns. You know as well as I do, Mike, how many of our you know, conversations with some of these multinationals will turn on that because they do not want they a situation want where they want to put themselves on the radar screen of the IRS. They don't want to get a U.S. tax identification number. They certainly don't want to file a U.S. tax return on an annual basis. And so that immediately, in most cases, changes the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that typically gets the attention of, of the non-U.S. Uh, entity or individual, and they quickly say, okay, let's, what, what else is at our disposal then? What else can we look at? And that's when the conversation typically turns to a C-Corp, a traditional C-Corporation. Yeah. The branch profits tax concept, I mean, that a source of that is, you know, the standard U.S. tax treaty um, that talks about, you know, these issues that we're Again, you may think you're a pass-through entity, but guess what? You're not. What's the standard withholding on the branch profits tax? It's still somewhere around 30%? 30%, Mike. It, it can be reduced by treaty, but you have uh, what's what's known, as, and, and, and I won't take our, our listeners down the rabbit hole too much. We want to keep everyone awake, but right. uh, there's a concept within the branch profits tax regime known as the dividend equivalent amount. And so essentially... It's not inconceivable for a non-U.S. multinational investing into the U.S. or carrying out activity in the U.S. through a pass-through to have a, an effective tax rate on their U.S. activity approaching 50%. Yeah. But by the time you get through the, the withholding rate, if you have a non-treaty, if someone's coming in from Brazil, for example, where we don't have a tax treaty, it, it's, it's even amplified. And so... It adds up pretty quickly. And what you find is that if you, if you instead form a C-Corp, you corral the U.S. activity yep. in that C-Corp. That activity is subject to U.S. tax at the corporate rate, which is now you know, substantially lower. And there are a number of mechanisms by which you can repatriate your residual profit back to the non-US owner. Uh, It it could be a dividend that's subject to a reduced withholding rate under a treaty, but it could also be a management fee going back to the the foreign parent company. Um, You might be paying royalties back to the foreign parent company for the right to use that foreign parent company's intellectual property or brands, logos, et cetera, in the US. So all is not lost by effectively falling on your sword, forming a C-Corp 
Um, and then managing that U.S. tax liability, like all domestic C-Corps do, through other mechanisms. And again, as you said earlier, it circles back to your treasury management. Do you want to leave residual profit in the U.S. for, for further CapEx needs? Or is the mandate to, to, to strip some of that out and back to the foreign parent company? Every company is different. Every, every company, as you know, Mike, has a, has a different uh, style from a treasury standpoint. But that's when you have the flexibility to plan for those things. If you are in a pass-through setting, you've really given up your flexibility for that planning. Right. Let's talk a bit about that planning. I mean, one of the weapons that, and, and weapon might not be the best word to use, but you know, one of the tools we have are, are you know, these broad set of agreements, you know, the intercompany agreements. You mentioned the royalties. Uh, you mentioned management fees. I mean, what are some common issues or common mistakes that crop up with these intercompany agreements? So the biggest one is transfer pricing, right? Transfer pricing is sort of the low hanging fruit. So very briefly, and, and as you mentioned earlier, in, in, in the context of piercing the veil, you could do an entire podcast on that. Yes. We could do an entire podcast here on, on transfer pricing. But um, very, very briefly, you know, transfer pricing is, is the notion that you cannot artificially allocate income between related parties to effectively game the system, right? To, to push income into a lower tax jurisdiction, create deductions in a higher tax jurisdiction. We can't artificially do that. Two related parties need to work with each other um, and interact on an arm's length basis as though they were not related. So the two primary things that come out of that, Mike, is one, you need an intercompany agreement if you're charging a royalty, a management fee, and any of those sorts of transactions, you need to have an intercompany agreement between the U.S. entity and its foreign parent company that sets forth the roles and responsibilities between the parties, who's doing what for whom, and how you're going to get paid for the services that you're providing. That's item one that you it's an absolute must-have. And then item two is a transfer pricing study that confirms that level of compensation. So, you know, an example would be your, your Irish parent is going to pay its U.S. sales office uh, on a cost plus 10% basis. Well, you'd want an intercompany services agreement in place that says that the U.S. office has been hired uh, to carry out sales, marketing, business development services. And you'd want a transfer pricing study that says 10% is a fair rate of compensation. Right, um, and so and 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 those are those are requirements uh, by the IRS. So if, if you're ever audited, if the U.S. entity is ever audited, the first thing they'll receive uh, from the IRS is an IDR, an information document request, and the first two things they'll ask for is a copy of that intercompany agreement and a copy of that transfer pricing study. So those are those are really the the, the most important items to be thinking about once you've established that intercompany relationship. Yeah. And again, it's about not being, let's let's say, too greedy, right? I mean, some might think, well, if I put that markup in, in this example at 5%, maybe somehow I'm going to fall, you know, not be on the radar screen. But the reality is the IRS, there's no sort of safe harbor, if you will, on that markup. I mean, if it's 1%, it's still got to be supported by a transfer pricing study. Great point, Mike. And I think sometimes that's a that's a little bit of a uh, an unusual conversation for some yes. of our non-US companies, right? Because 
in a lot of jurisdictions, there is a safe harbor. I mean, right. there, there are safe harbors in the UK, there are safe harbors in, in, in India, and there, there are many jurisdictions around the globe that have transfer pricing safe harbors. The United States is not one of them. And, and when you're having that early conversation with a, a new client or prospective client that's coming into the US is trying to figure out you know, all the boxes they need to tick. And, and they say, well, you know, early days, you know, first couple of years, we don't expect much in the way of, of revenue or, or residual income in the U.S. This doesn't really apply to us, does it? And, and the answer <laughs> right, is yes, yeah. it does, right? It, it's, it's without regard to that. If you, have an inter, if you have a related party relationship, you're on the hook for these requirements. Right. Like you're saying, it, it attaches to, you know, these intercompany services, intercompany IP licenses, intercompany distribution, sales agency relationships. It, it's across the board. It's just, it's not, you know, one piece of that intercompany connection. It's really all pieces of that connection that relate to the move, movement of cash. That's exactly right. And again, it's one of those, it's again, one of those misnomers, right? Where, where you know, a lot of people think the LLC is the way to go and, yeah. it, and it typically isn't. Same to be said for transfer pricing. A lot uh, there's a lot of misapprehension that transfer pricing only applies to tangible products. And you know, right. back to the top of the program, you talk about the being a widget company. Only if I'm selling some tangible product into the marketplace does transfer pricing exist. That's also not true. Right. A any related party transaction, intellectual property, licensing, management services, whatever it might be, all subject to transfer pricing in the same manner that you would be subject to transfer pricing scrutiny or compliance if you were selling a widget from, from one party to another. What other sort of tax planning suggestions would you put out there? I mean, again, yeah. pretty high level stuff, but you know, there's, there's some opportunities here to streamline the system. There are, Mike, and I, and I won't belabor them, um, but just to give our audience uh, a, a little bit of a flavor for some of the other things that, you know, as we go down this path of, of counsel with our clients that we start to get into, check the box elections. Uh, that's, a, that's a regime in the U.S. where you can actually make an entity classification election to treat an entity as something other than its, its corporate legal form. And so an example might be a company says, you know, we have some really intricate interest players and we really want the flexibility of an LLC. We, we want to run the business under, uh, under the, the terms of an LLC operating agreement. We get what you've told us about the C-Corp being more efficient, um, but we really would like that flexibility from a corporate law perspective of utilizing a, an LLC and we can operate under that agreement. Is there any way we can have the best of both worlds? And the answer there is it yes. In in some cases, yes, you could form an LLC from a corporate law perspective, but because we want these tax efficiencies of a C corp that we've discussed, you would make a check the box election, as we call it, to have the LLC treated as a corporation for U.S. federal income tax purposes, and that's one way where you can in many cases get the best of both worlds. You have your LLC for elite from a legal standpoint. But you're you're taxed as a corporation from a from a tax standpoint. That's one uh, item that we talk about, and then the last one I'll leave you with um, is the use of blocker entities. So, you know, sometimes we'll see a situation where we're going to have two sets of investors coming into the U.S. entity. Um, one group might be non-U.S. and the other group might be U.S. Well, 
they have sort of divergent interests at that point because the U.S. investors would rather invest through a pass-through LLC. The non-U.S. investors, as we've said, would rather come through a corporate vehicle or a non-pass-through vehicle. And so in some cases, um, we'll talk about interposing a corporate blocker entity so that everybody, again, gets the best of both worlds. The U.S. investors can go directly into the underlying pass-through LLC operating company, but maybe we've interposed a C-Corp blocker between that LLC pass-through operating company and the foreign owner so that they don't get stuck with some of these onerous branch profits tax and other compliance items that we've discussed. So the use of, of blocker entities is something that we often talk about with our clients as well. And then, of course, in situations where maybe a, an investor group is coming into the U.S. from a non-treaty country, uh, earlier I mentioned Brazil, is there an opportunity to utilize a treaty-protected entity outside of the U.S. to consolidate or amalgamate the non-U.S. ownership and then filter that into the U.S. entity through a non-U.S. treaty blocker entity. So th those are some of the types of, of more exotic planning conversations we have, Mike, but in many cases they become um, very important, uh, very immediate. And so you see here we go from the, you know, along the continuum of our conversation is really the, the conversation we have with clients is what risk do we have operating directly and now here we are 20 some minutes later and we're talking about, you know, blocker. Blocker and yes. Right. Yes. So that's sort of the evolution of the conversation, Mike. And hopefully, you know, in a lot of ways, the evolution of foreign company or clients uh, experience in the United States. Right. I mean, you could start out simple, but as they grow, you know, the, the tax guidance changes a little bit because, you know, what makes sense in early days when you're just selling again, the, you know, the mythical widget into the U.S. market's a lot different than, you know, as you add employees, you know, some companies will add production capacity in the States, et cetera. I mean, the, it's an on, it's an ongoing conversation. That's exactly right. That's what makes it fun to sit where you and I sit and, yeah. um, and have conversations with bright, you know, entrepreneurial companies and, it makes it a, a privilege uh, for for me to do what I do. I know you feel the same, yep, and absolutely. Um, you know, on on that note, it's it's been a privilege to discuss these issues with you today, Mike. It's always great to get back together again. Now, Sean, I I appreciate it. I know that that the audience appreciates it as well. It's always always good to talk to you. Um, and we didn't go down too many rabbit holes about our former employer either. So we're we're in pretty good stead right now. <laughs> I would agree. Yep. All right, Sean. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it.